Father, we pray this morning as your word is proclaimed from this pulpit, that it would be by the inspiration, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, so that these inspired words would cut deep into our souls, doing the necessary surgery to remove yet areas of sin that plague our hearts, that you might use the sharp two-edged sword of your Holy Scripture to do the sanctifying surgery that we need to be more pure and to walk in your ways. Teach us your ways as we have sung through the proclamation of your word this day, that we may fill our deepest redeemed soul's longing to walk in your ways. Teach us to desire truth more than anything else and remind us of the precious gold, the mine of riches contained within the pages of your Holy Scripture that we may desire it above all else. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in this service, even as we submit our hearts to the authority and the proclamation of your infallible, unchanging truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we will explore Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. Would you turn there with me today? It is our great privilege to open up the scriptures together. The record of, as the young people have been learning in their doctrine study in the mornings, the record of God's special revelation that is particular, exact, precise word of God pertaining to his nature, his character, and the salvation of man. That is to say, in the book of Genesis and throughout the pages of scripture, we learn how God has Uh, created this world and how he recreates us in the gospel, and we learn further his relationship between him as the creator and the sovereign, and we his creatures, and indeed all that he has made. This morning, the aim of today's message is to train us to identify and appreciate biblical types, symbols, and concepts. There will be three examples later this morning of themes that appear in Genesis 2 and minute or seed form. They're planted, as it were, as seeds in the soil of God's revelation at this time in history, which these words were written, only to take root and to bloom forth fruitfully in more knowledge and truth later through the course of redemptive history. This is often how the scriptures reveal the truth of God, from seed to full flowering and fruitful harvest from minute or condensed and potential form to the realization of God's work and acts and revelation through history in all its fullness. So hopefully this morning as we study these ideas and concepts, it will train us to better recognize types, symbols, and concepts such as we have them in Genesis revealed through the course of of the revelation of God's Word, His Holy Scriptures. With your Bible open now to Genesis 2, 10 through 17, would you stand with me again out of reverence for the Word of God and listen as God's Word is proclaimed in your hearing today as, we read His in, as I read for you His infallible truth. This is Genesis 2, 10 through 17. This is the Holy Word of God. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we have mentioned before, chapter 2 of Genesis continues to lay out a blueprint for the architecture of all reality. Genesis lays out a blueprint for the architecture of reality itself. Concepts that are absolutely foundational to the relationship of the Creator to His creatures are here. They're presented in Genesis 2 and in the surrounding text in condensed form. These theme seeds, if you will, are planted in Genesis only to unfold throughout the record of the Scriptures through special revelation as their ideas and the knowledge contained within that condensed form is expanded and is expounded. These foundational structures, these basic integral ideas, therefore, by this means give way or begin to unfold, unfurl, and to flourish in our understanding gradually as we move through the record of Scripture. Now, the discipline of recognizing these kinds of concepts through the course of Scripture, to look at a thread that's introduced in Genesis and to trace its path as it weaves all the way through to Revelation, that discipline is called uh, a, a biblical theology. So you can mark that down, biblical theology. The concept or the discipline of biblical theology is to trace how the Bible reveals certain truths as we move through the course chronologically of God's revelation, a fruitful study indeed. And this morning we'll touch on a few of these seed form aspects of revelation and we will trace, we will look for a couple times the thread uh, finds its way resurfacing through the course of Scripture. Recognizing this dynamic is key to appreciating the opening pages of Genesis. Why? Because in Genesis we find small packages of, if you will, shrink-wrapped or hyper-condensed or uh, super-charged um, uh, super, uh, small packages of divine knowledge. And these could be easily overlooked or dismissed as trivial if we considered them just on their surface and apart from the whole of Scripture. However, when we consult the rest of the Bible, what we discover is that these details of Genesis are profound indeed. Details such as we we have just read. Why are these four rivers listed? We can only answer that by looking at the greater portion of Scripture. And so we'll touch upon that today. Many of these theme seeds do not enjoy their full flowering, in fact, until John's Revelation, the last book of the canon, and the book of Revelation... These themes resurface, many of them, and we see in that record uh, some of their more full flowering at the other bookend, if you will, of the Scriptures. We will consider three seeds this morning planted in the early pages of the Bible in light of their flowering through the greater text today. As we mentioned, according to the purpose of this message, let's pray that this will help us to grasp the symbology and the significance of the creation account and therefore our knowledge 
and our understanding and our joy and appreciation for Scripture will be reinforced. So with that introduction, let me give you a theme or a heading followed by three of these themes. The heading is three themes introduced by Adam and his garden, of course, the Garden of Eden. So let's consider three themes in our text today introduced by Adam and his garden. The first theme will be the headwaters of Eden, which means the source of the rivers. The headwaters of Eden, the source of four rivers, as we see in our text today. The second major theme will be Adam's calling, and we'll call that gardener and guardian. That was a term I got from one of the commentaries I was reading. I thought it was helpful. Adam was called to be a gardener and a guardian of Eden. And the third theme is covenantal conditions, the terms of relationship that are established by God so that uh, between him and his creature, made in his image, Adam, man himself. So those three themes we'll explore today, the headwaters of Eden, gardener and guardian, and covenantal conditions. Again, these appear in minute form, if you will, as seed ideas, but they will be developed through the course of Scripture. So let's consider the first. Looking again at our passage this morning, follow with me through verses 10 through 14 and pay close attention to details related to these four different rivers. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. These are some curious details. <clears throat> People have looked at this passage and speculated, I wonder where the Garden of Eden might be situated. Now, if you look at a map today, and you, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates are two names for rivers, even today, in the Middle East, the Near Eastern area. And if I can describe it for you, imagine the eastern side of Turkey. That would be the headwaters today of the Tigris and Euphrates, and somewhere in those highlands of the east side of Armenia, they begin to flow towards the Persian Gulf, and there's a point where they converge, the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, not far from the Persian Gulf, kind of tracing the arc of the Fertile Crescent around the Near East. So some have wondered, well, if we look at where the Tigris and Euphrates are today, perhaps the Garden of Eden is there kind of on the Persian Gulf side where those rivers converge, or perhaps it's more literally at the headwaters in eastern Armenia in the, in the highlands. May I submit to you that this is speculation indeed, primarily for this reason. As we continue to read in the book of Genesis, we find that the world that was, was utterly rearranged by a catastrophic event that affected the surface of this entire globe in, yes, a worldwide flood. So the Tigris and Euphrates we know today, we can likely assume, are different than the Tigris, Euphrates, the Pishon, and the Gihon as they were recorded beforehand, which raises the question, why this particular reference to the geography of Eden if we can't really uh, hope to find it on a map today? Is there, after all, as we read about Eden, we know very little about that particular plot of land, that garden 
that must have been unimaginable in its order and its beauty, the perfect and pristine place for God to display His glory and to give as a gift to man that which He would steward and cause when He was obedient to cultivate and then to flourish with the bounty of God's perfect genetic potential in each and every one of His living creatures, plants and animals bursting forth in life. Uh, it's hard to, uh, for us to imagine how glorious this might be. And curiously, in the text, we have very little detail of what that looked like, where it was situated, what were the geographic features, save this detail in the text today. We know that there were four rivers that converged at the headwaters in the Garden of Eden. What can we learn from this? Well, I submit to you this morning that the significance of these rivers has more to do with theology, the revelation of the Lord, than it does um, that, uh, a helpful uh, way to find uh, Eden on the map as we know it today. And let's look closely and see what we can... So let's look closely, therefore, and see what we can learn. Notice, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So the significance of this river might have something to do with a direction... There's a flowing out of Eden of these rivers. In other words, though the Garden of Eden, this contained sanctuary, was a smaller location on the globe, nevertheless, the life source within the garden flowed forth from Eden different directions. So we have a flowing forth of the rivers out of this confined area. Secondly, we have a diversity of areas that are referenced. We have Havilah, Cush, and Assyria. These are interesting because they refer likely to different regions, and later in the text we see even different peoples. Nations can be in view here. So now we have a river that proceeds forth from Eden, and it goes forth. Not, it doesn't just water this location where Adam was originally planted, as it were, originally given his charge to take care of the garden, but these rivers go forth to other areas indeed. There's a diversity of areas that were watered by that which had its headwaters in Eden. Now, thirdly, we can see that the pathways of these rivers were marked by beauty and by wealth and resources. It says the, in reference to one, Pishon, verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedallium and onyx stone are there. So we have this pathway of the river tracing around areas that are rich with beauty, with wealth, and with resources. And so that is another key or another clue to the significance of these rivers. So here we have, in sum, a multiplication Oh, and, and, and the fourth thing is multiplication. A river flowed out of Eden, but it didn't, it didn't uh, remain just one body or one stream of water. But indeed, this river split into four. There is a multiplication. There is an increase. So it divided and becomes four rivers, we read in verse 10. So add all these up, and we have something of a record of the significance that we begin to see coming forth and these rivers, these water sources from Eden. There's multiplication. There are diverse areas affected. There are pathways of beauty and wealth. There is a proceeding forth 
unto a greater glory and a greater increase throughout the whole world. There is to say, that is to say, and to summarize one of these ideas or a couple, that the rivers of Eden represent dynamic vitality, or you could say life source, dynamic vitality. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There is a dynamic life source represented in these rivers. Is this significant? Yes, it absolutely is. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Again, this is a theme seed, if you will. But Jesus touches upon the theme of river in his ministry. You may recall, this is the, uh, the theme is water again. This is the, the encounter of the woman at the well. She's drawing water in God's providence from a well uh, dug by Jacob, as it were. And we see how Jesus uses this opportunity to expound on some theological ideas in verse 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus is referencing a unique water source, a source that is outside the experience of this woman who is a pagan, an alien and a stranger from the covenant of God at this time. Yet she is being visited with a personal face-to-face interaction with the Messiah, who himself is the source of living water, a different source of water entirely. A dynamic vitality flows forth from our Savior, and this woman is encountering a source of eternal life pictured in water as she speaks with this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Great question. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, she asks? Little does she know. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Where do you get that living water? Where does this water come from? What is the origin and source of this dynamic vitality? What is the secret of your source of life? Well, Jesus reintroduces, as it were, this lost soul to the headwaters of Eden, if you will. When he says, verse 12 or verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will never be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him Will, uh, but whoever, excuse me, everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again. Verse 13, speaking of Jacob's well, but verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will. Uh, not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And the record continues. We find in the salvation of her soul that she was able to tap into the spiritual source of life in Christ, her Messiah. And the living water that flowed forth from Christ nourishes the soul such that it is never thirsty again. That which is pictured as a dynamic, a diversified, multiplying uh, 
a boundless source of beauty and wealth proceeding forth unto the glorification of the Lord beyond Eden, may I suggest, is realized in Christ. Mankind was barred from returning to the Garden of Eden to drink from this source of life, to eat from the tree of life. But in Jesus Christ, there is purchased through His blood access to the vital source of life again. And the headwaters of Eden now find their source, so to speak, in this picture, in Jesus Christ Himself. He is the dynamic life source. At another time in Jesus' preaching, you can study on your own time, John 7, 37 through 39, He repeats this message to an even wider audience. Thus, to the individual and to the whole and to the collective, as it were, Jesus proclaims Himself as the source of eternal life and relates it to the picture of water. From Him streams rivers of living water unto eternal life indeed flow. Now, the headwaters of Eden also speak to an increasing glory, a progressive revealing of the plan and purposes of God that go from one to four and from Eden to beyond. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47 and let us pull on this thread, if you will, and see where these ideas are picked up later in Scripture. We see in the course, in the context of the study of Eden, that Eden itself was something of a sanctuary. It was a place where God's glory was pleased to dwell because the conditions were met for Him to have favor with man. That is, in the realm or under the conditions of faithfulness to the covenant, God is pleased to dwell with man, and this becomes a sanctuary. Now, this idea of sanctuary is lost, of course, when man sins, as we find later in the record. But there is purchased, at the cost of great sacrifice, Another sanctuary for man. And this sanctuary, this place of reunion, reconciliation of God with man is pictured in the tabernacle and in the temple. But this isn't isn't the fullness revealed. This is just more of the unfolding of that seed form through the course of Scripture. And And there comes this sorrowful day when even the temple itself is destroyed. And in this void, in this great longing and lack of the place of sanctuary of God's dwelling, the prophets cry out. They cry out for a fulfillment, for an increasing glory yet to come. And Ezekiel lends his voice to this unified message when he says in chapter 47, verse 1, the following, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out the south side. Imagine kind of a leaky faucet or small streams, rivulets. This is what the prophet begins to see, different places and uh, different uh, Occasions for this water to appear are presented to him in this vision. And verse 3 continues, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water. It was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Do you see? 
There is an increase pictured in this vision, a stream of dynamic vitality, of living water associated with the temple, flowing forth wider, deeper. Uh, and, and we continue verse 5, again, he measured a thousand and it was a river and I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And it led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river, very many trees on the one side and on the other. Do you hear echoes of Eden? The river that flowed through the garden that caused it to spring forth into life. The river that nourished the tree of life, as it were, in the garden. Here we see hope for it, yet in the horizon, as the prophet declares, there is yet a river. It is and will be increasing. And upon its banks, it's flourishing with life. And he said to me, verse 8, this water flows through the eastern region and goes down into Arba and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish for this, where this, or for this water goes there. And the waters of the sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. It goes on to describe the fishermen and who partake of the bounty of this river. So you see here the thread of what is pictured in this metaphor and this visual and symbol and imagery, the stream of water uh, whose way was barred by the sin of man will be reopened by a force in the future, by the power of God through his glorious Messiah. And the sanctuary will once again flow with the glory of the Lord and a source of living water will proceed from the place of his dwelling with man and it will increase in its power, in its intensity and its life-giving force to encompass the whole earth. Indeed, as Habakkuk 2.14 says, God's glory covers this earth as the waters cover the sea. And though seas themselves are turned into fresh water, a picture again, of the salinity being washed away, purified by this perfect, life-giving, amazing water of God's purposes and His glory and His fulfillment, accomplishing His kingdom ends through this whole earth and beyond. The headwaters of Eden yet flow, brothers and sisters. They yet flow at the place of God's reunion and union with man. The headwaters of Eden yet flow from the temple as it were, Jesus Christ. The headwaters of Eden are bursting with life, even as you share in the life, the new life, the rebirth, uh, celebrating your own salvation that Christ, the source of living water, has accomplished in your own soul. Turn with me to one last reference along these lines in Revelation 22. This picture of living water flowing as a river, increasing in power and magnitude and life only is magnified as we trace the course of Scripture. And this, you may recall in Revelation 22, is a picture, again, prophetically revealed to God's servant John, and notice what he sees. Verse 1, then the angel showed me, John speaking, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Yes, indeed, the healing of Cush. 
the healing of Assyria, the healing of Havilah is realized in this water of life, this living water that flows pure and clean and clear as crystal from the throne of God, causing the tree of life to flourish on either side. No longer, it says, verse 3, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more, and there will need, uh, need no lamp. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and He will reign forever and ever. Here again, the picture of river, the vitality, the dynamic life-giving force of this stream of the power of God resurfaces in glory one day. And now we don't just have, you know, uninhabited territory, Havilah, Cush, and Assyria. We don't have uncultivated lands in Eden waiting for the hand of Adam to put it in order, but we have this stream running through a civilization, a city, and on either side of this river flowing, as it were, clear as crystal. We have all along its banks the tree of life springing forth, with full flourishing flower and fruit for the healing of the nations. This is the headwaters of Eden, restored and realized in fullness. This is what we have to look forward to. Oh, the day, oh, the joy of that day on our horizon, if you are in Christ today, brother and sister, when we will partake of the fruit for the healing of the nations alongside every blood-bought and redeemed soul along that stream, of crystal clear waters in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth fully restored. You see, this is a seed form, the rivers revealed to us in Genesis 2, but we have it fully revealed in the future and we have hints and glimpses of it prophetically declared throughout the scriptures, the headwaters of Eden indeed. The second theme this morning, introduced by Adam and his garden. We'll call this the gardener and the guardian. Back in our primary text, Genesis 2, verse 15. Notice the vocation or calling or job description that the Lord gives Adam. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man, that of course would be Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden. Two words. To work it and to keep. Work and keep. Again, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. As we look a little closer at the language, we have in this idea of work that he had a productive vocation or calling. He had a job to do. This, of course, was pre-fall. Work itself is not a curse. As we often comment, man was created to come alongside the Lord and participate in His creative ability to serve under Him as His vicegerent, that is, His deputized agent, taking dominion and shaping and forming and cultivating and causing to flourish and grow God's purposes for His creation. This is Adam as gardener, Adam as husbandman, or you could say Adam as a good shepherd even, someone who is called to take care of the creation. But more than this, Adam was called to keep it, work it, and keep it. Keep refers to guard, preserve, uh, manage the premises. It presupposes that there will be an enemy, adversaries at the gate, forces 
that will want to subvert God's purposes here. And so Adam is to be vigilant, to be a conqueror, and to guard with his authority and with his commissioning from the Lord against any powers or person who would seek to thwart the activity that God has ordained. And of course, Adam fails in this regard. However, to this he is called. Adam as gardener and guardian speaks to the holiness of work. God has created us to work alongside Him until His kingdom ends. There are many questions that are answered by this seed of truth in Genesis 2. One question that's answered is this, why doesn't God just push a button and save everybody? Why doesn't God just um, in one giant altar call uh, reap in the whole harvest and then boom, heaven is here? One reason is, is while we, after we come to Christ, likely having heard the word preached by a servant of His, perhaps many times over, and then we begin to participate in spreading the knowledge of God's truth to others, sharing our testimony by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, His agents now serving Him, take dominion as it were in His kingdom, shedding the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as they have experienced it in their own salvation. As we do this, we are redeeming in part part of our original call to serve alongside God in taking dominion over His creation. And in this sense, in evangelizing and sharing the gospel, it is a new creation endeavor. We are redeeming work. The holiness of gospel work is participated in when His servants, you and I, shine forth the glory of the Lord, proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, live according to His commandments, testify to the power that has changed our hearts. Next week, we will cover this in more detail, but it is no surprise in a pagan environment and in a pagan world how the enemy has sought in our culture today to, re or to rewrite all of this basic architecture of reality. In other words, Adam it takes a wife. We see God has provided a wife for him as our passage continues. Therefore, man in his sin uh, in, and rebellion seeks to reorder the definition of marriage. Um, we see God has ordered a particular calling and vocation for Adam in his work. Therefore, it is no surprise that man in his sin and rebellion would want to profane work itself. I submit to you, we live in a culture that does exactly that. For us, in our minds, if we picture the perfect vocation or even an eternal utopia, a lot of times we see it as the absence of work, a self-indulgent lifestyle of just sitting back and sipping on things that are served to us on a golden platter. This is not the vision for God's purposes redeemed for us as His agents. We are to rule and reign with Christ. We are to be active in this endeavor. Indeed, even in the political arena, there is a profaning of work uh, that we see in movements like socialism. Why do I say this? In socialism, the individual's work has no meaning. And instead, what the individual accomplishes is swallowed up in the collective and the whole. And it's a way of profaning the calling and vocation as it applies to the particular activities that man is called to participate in so long as he's God's chief creation, the crown of his creation, and so long as there is a creation to subdue. Yes, 
There is a holiness attached to man's call to be diligent, to be productive, to be innovative, to earn a wage, to go forth, and to, uh, uh, um, to make a progress in God's original call to steward well and to cultivate His earth. After all, Adam was called to be gardener and guardian. Now, that's gardener as we move uh, to this idea of guardian. We see something of the scope of Adam's call in minute or seed form. Notice again, it says in verse 15, Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice the following verse. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, uh, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, young people, you've been studying this. This message from God, is this special revelation or general revelation? Uh, special or general? Special revelation. This is God giving His commandment to man. He's giving him His word. He commands him saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So who did God tell this to, young people? Adam, that's right. Here we find Adam alone in the garden at this time, and he is given God's commandment, God's dictate, God's word. Uh, how would Eve know what to do? Uh, along the way, how would the generations, how would Adam's children know what to do? Any ideas, children? How would Eve know what to do? What tree she could eat of and not, how would she know? Adam could tell her. That's correct. Adam could tell her. What do we call someone who tells someone else the word of God. There's a special office for it in the Old Testament. Anyone know? Is it prophet, priest, or king? One... Yes, that's exactly right. Adam had a calling as guardian of the realm of Eden to be a prophet, to, be, to serve in a prophetic role. He was given instructions. He was given the word of God. It was Adam's duty to share the word of God as a prophet, as it were, to his wife and to successive generations, his children, the Word of God. This was part of his calling. Not only this, but these two words of work and keep relate directly to the calling of priest as well, believe it or not. We don't have time to study it today, but if you mark in your notes Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, and chapter 18, verse 7, you can see these same two Hebrew words translated here, work and keep, are associated with the priestly calling. That is to say that the priests of the tabernacle and the temple were called to work and to keep in the sacrificial system. They were to be, as it were, doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. We studied Psalm 84 last week to guard the premises of the temple from the unholy and the profane. Nothing unclean was to enter the premises, but they also were to work. They were to obey the Lord and present themselves during the ceremonies and the liturgy and the sacrifices obediently before the Lord to follow through on His instructions for them. Adam was to do the same in the garden. He was to work it and to keep it. Adam was called to be something of a priest and something of a prophet, may I submit. And more than this, Adam was to be something of a king. A king is one who takes and exerts dominion. 
And what does Adam do except uh, this, if, if not this, in his call? After all, as we continue to read, it says verse 19, that out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Pausing there. What Adam is doing here is he's exercising his dominion as the king of the realm, as it were. Serving under the Lord, he is assigning the appropriate categories, the identity, and as it were, defining the purpose, establishing order throughout this realm of Eden. Thus, in the scope of Adam's calling as gardener and guardian, he was to serve a prophetic, a priestly, and a kingly role, moving forward in the holiness of his work to be obedient to God. This brings up the final theme of this morning's message. Again, three themes introduced by Adam and his garden. Number one, we've studied the headwaters of Eden and what that means throughout the course of Scripture. Number two, we've considered gardener and guardian. Number three, let's consider covenantal conditions. And we'll touch upon a New Testament reference with respect to gardener and guardian as well as we wrap up this message. I want you to notice in Genesis 2 that there are terms and conditions of man's relationship with God. What do we call an agreement between two or more parties? A lot of trivia for you kids this morning. What do we call an agreement between two or more parties? That's right, a covenant. Now let's note in our text today if we see something of a covenant here. Verse 16, Genesis 2. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, Again, in theology, this time systematic theology, there is an idea that is used to describe what I just read. It's called covenantal theology. That is to say, students of the Word of God have noticed that it is God's pattern to relate to man in terms of covenant. That is a specified agreement, uh, something like a contract, a relationship with terms, things you must do. And in this very simple covenant that we just read, what are the terms? What are the things that Adam must do? He must obey the Lord. He is free to eat from every tree except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's correct. That is the one tree that Adam cannot eat from. If he eats from that tree, he he will surely die. He will be in breach of covenant. He will transgress God's law. So here we have, in covenantal theology, what is sometimes called the covenant of works or the covenant of life, depending on what you refer to it as. We call it the covenant of works because these are the conditions. Adam must perfectly obey God's word in order to gain life. That would be the covenant of works. We could call it the covenant of life. That would be a term that relates to its promises. If Adam keeps the instructions perfectly, then what will he receive? What is the promise? Life. The covenant of works or the covenant of life. Now, this covenant is broken very quickly, and all hope for Adam would appear to be lost. 
Adam dies the day spiritually and will die physically the day he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in covenantal theology, we recognize a second covenant. We call it the covenant of grace. In the first covenant, Adam was the head. He was the representative. And in Adam, we all fell. In the second covenant, the head is Christ. And in Adam, and in Jesus Christ, for all who are in him, we can partake of eternal life. This is the basic seed form of covenantal ideas that we see in Genesis 2. Now, all of that commentary for just one verse, you might say. That's surprising. Yes, it is. But the rest of the Scripture informs our categories, does it not? Um, When we read, pardon me, just two verses, when God commanded man, saying, these instructions, you may eat of every tree, but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you shall surely die. It's very minute, a compressed, a super condensed, sweetened condensed, you could say, vacuum-packed package of truth. But with the rest of the Scripture, it begins to unfold. So let's move to two New Testament Scriptures that unfolds these truths in their full form. The verse will be Romans 5. If Adam, or if, uh, as we have in the record of Genesis 2, the first Adam, we have in Romans 5 revealed to us the second Adam. This is familiar territory for many of us, but I think it's important to notice how these themes go all the way back to Genesis. So pay attention to what is implied in the words of Moses as we read the words of Paul. This is Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was uh, indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam, Paul says, was a type of one to come. In other words, just like Adam represented all men in the covenant of works, so there would be another covenant head, one who would represent all of his own in the covenant of grace. Verse 15, we read of this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, again, covenant of grace, following many trespasses brought justification. That means to be made right and righteous before the Lord. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 gives us covenantal conditions in seed form. It trains us to recognize the terms of God's relationship. And we see tragically in Adam, the whole world was thrown into sin because our representative head failed in his duty. However, there was hope on the horizon. This is announced in Genesis itself, Genesis 3.15, the promise given 
to man and, wa- and his wife at this time is that, yes, there is a serpent who has deceived, but, and there is the seed of the serpent, but there will be the seed of the woman who will crush his head, yet he will bruise his heel. And somehow, mysteriously, in this seed form of the gospel, we have hope. How is this hope revealed? Through the pages of Scripture, we see it unfolding. Who is the son of man? Who is the son of David? Who is the son of Adam who would come? Who is the one, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head? Jesus Christ. How does he do it? He does it on the cross. He receives that mortal wound, yet he is resurrected. Yet the wound that he inflicts, that crushing head wound that he inflicts upon Satan, he, the devil, the wicked one, the accuser of the brethren, the snake indeed from the garden of Eden will never recover from. This is federal headship, that is, representative headship revealed through the Scripture as it unfolds. Last passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. Here again we see the Scriptures expound these truths. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again is unfolding the reality of Genesis 2 revealed in fullness in Christ when he says, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy is the wages of sin. We will not suffer the wages of sin if we are in Christ, because Christ has paid the wages Christ has paid the judgment we deserve for us. And indeed, if we are in Him, we will rise with Him. We will rise from the dead. We will rule and reign with Him, restored to the position that Adam never quite attained to be that sanctified and glorified state at the right hand of the Father, as the Scriptures speak at the right hand or with Jesus Christ, that is to say, ruling and reigning over His kingdom, restored to that calling of that scope of calling, of serving along Christ and the holiness of our work realized, taking part in God's original purposes for Adam, now redeemed through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through all, for all who are in Him. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week, and something amazing was brought to my attention. It was a book review. I can't remember the book or the author, but the book said that on, when Jesus hung on the cross that each one of his offices, remember, what are Jesus' offices? The ones that Adam failed to fulfill? Prophet, and what else? Priest and king. Prophet, priest, and king. When Jesus hung on the cross, the accuser of the brethren, speaking through his agents of rebellion, namely the robbers, the thieves, the, uh, the robbers next to him, the soldiers that crucified him, and the high priests that mocked him, they, uh, they mocked him, they despised him, they scorned him, and they rebuked him according to all three offices. The soldiers dressed him up 
in a robe. They put a crown of thorns upon his head and a reed in his hand and said, Hail, hail, King of the Jews. Uh, Satan hated the fact that Christ was a sovereign over him. And he thought he had this upper hand in this moment. Little did he know his authority would be crushed. His head would be destroyed in mere moments when Jesus went to the cross. Yet he was mocked because he was truly King of kings and Lord of lords. Next come the soldiers. And they say uh, to him, uh, you know, you saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Or maybe this is the priest in Matthew. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? The priest is the one who is supposed to represent the people to intercede on their behalf. And now Christ's priestly office is being mocked. And thirdly, there were those when he was blindfolded who struck him and said, prophesy, prophesy, who struck you? Christ was prophet, priest, and king. The scope of his calling as the second Adam was absolutely perfect. And we see even at the cross, the enemy, the devil, so hated the truth that the second Adam had come, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, that he sought to uh, launch all of his wicked salvo and his rebellion against these very things. Yet, praise be to God, it was unsuccessful. Christ is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest and the perfect king. He is the perfect Adam who has made perfect and satisfactory atonement for all sins. That is to say, the conditions, the covenantal conditions laid out for the reconciliation of man with God and the advancement of man unto glory from Genesis 2 that are recorded all the way back in Genesis 2 and remain a paradigm and a theme all through Scripture, that perfect holiness and righteousness is the cost of reconciliation with God. This is accomplished through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled God's law to a T, and in His role as second Adam, He obeyed the Lord without fail. And in him, therefore, the salvation of man was secure. Though we were corrupted by sin, and in our original covenant head, Adam, born in our trespasses and wickedness, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, fulfills all the demands of the covenant of works. And by the covenant of grace, transfers this virtue, this holiness, this law-keeping to our account, he takes on our sin upon Himself on the cross and thereby holds out eternal life for all those who are in union with Him, the second Adam. Have you ever wondered, oh, if I could just visit Eden? Oh, if I could just drink from the headwaters of the four rivers that diverge from that beautiful source of that pristine creation in its nascent form before it was touched by corruption, death, and sin. Sisters, brothers in Christ, there is a way to drink from streams of living water again. It is in and through Jesus Christ. In Him, our second Adam, Eden and more, is restored. In Him, the source of, and the, uh, of the rivers and fountains of living waters spring forth. In Him, because of His work on Calvary, we have a perfect head and representative. In Him is our hope both now and forever. Let us praise Him as we close in prayer for His mighty work on our behalf. Dear Lord, we thank You 
that in your perfect wisdom, according to your perfect plan in the fullness of time, you accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. We thank you that you have revealed these truths through the page, through page after page of your glorious revelation. We pray that you would quicken our hearts to the beauty and the power of your holy word as we have looked upon your scriptures this day. We pray that you would use by this means, uh, by this means to draw, Lord. We pray that you would use this means to draw the proclamation of your word irresistibly the lost who may yet remain in this room unto the cross of Jesus Christ, that they would cry out in, in a confession of their own sins for mercy from the only source of salvation, Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that you would continue to proclaim this message through your gospel heralds as it's lived through your people and proclaimed from your pulpits until such time as the fullness of your elect has come in. In the meantime, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen our faith and establish the foundations of our soul to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.